BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, July 30th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. What is the national animal of America? I would guess the eagle. <laughs> That's probably a good guess. I'm sure we could look it up in 10 seconds. What about Canada? I don't know, like an elk or something like that. <laughs> so a lot of people think it's the moose. It's not. It is the beaver. And I think Canadians, even though we have, you know, it's it's hard to find Canadian culture because the country is so diverse. And we have these kind of stereotypical things like hockey and maple syrup. Uh, but beavers figure pretty prominently in our culture. And, and most Canadians are, are pretty proud of their beavers. So you might be surprised that this week uh, I talked to Ben Goldfarb and he wrote a book recently about the secret lives of beavers, and it's based almost entirely in the U.S. I don't think listeners can see my face, but are we doing a show on the science of beavers? Yep. <laughs> okay, so, I'm confused. Like, why? Why? <laughs> why? Why beavers? What's going on with so? Them? So beavers, first off, are remarkably similar to humans in many ways in which they alter their environment to suit their needs. Uh, so it's it's kind of remarkable just how much they can change their environment to create the kind of things that they need. Um, so that's one thing that I was found really fascinating. Another thing that I found really interesting is that, you know, in a lot of ways, because they are so adept at changing their environment, they could play a role in helping us combat climate change, which, of course, is a big topic of our show. Uh, so that was a kind of, you know, for me, an interesting way of looking at how one animal species might be able to help us, you know, solve some of the very human problems. And, you know, we, we look to beavers and, and they're, you know, a lot of us don't really know exactly what they're all about, um, but their behavior is really interesting. And the fact that they're so adaptable uh, and, and really kind of pretty intelligent creatures, uh, I found really fascinating. Okay, I'm going to channel my Canadian spirit and say I'm ready to learn about the beaver. All right, so let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Ben Goldfarb. Today's episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt. Are you too clean? Modern hygiene has led us to believe that removing the bacteria from our body is a good thing. 
but that's not the case. Our skin, much like our guts, needs good bacteria to thrive. Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores a good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but has been wiped away by modern hygiene. Mother Dirt's patented ammonia oxidizing bacteria work on consuming the ammonia in your sweat and producing beneficial byproducts for your skin, bringing balance to your skin biome. Since ammonia is the stinky part of your sweat, the AOB and AO Plus Mist helps with BO. 60% of Mother Dirt AO Plus Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether, and 66% of users find that they take shorter showers and cut out an average of 2.5 products from their routine. Right now, Inquiring Minds listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code MINDS. Head to motherdirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with code MINDS. Plant the seeds of healthy living and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. Today's episode was brought to you by Looker. Use Looker to take your analytics to the next level. Looker is a modern analytics platform bringing data-driven decision-making to every level of business. From innovative startups to enterprise-grade businesses, thousands of companies are using Looker in every department to access, analyze, and act on their data. Looker gives you the right tools for the job. Their modern best-of-breed data workflows free up time for higher-value work and has solutions for every department from customer support and marketing to product and data science. Looker is built with your security in mind and ensures that your data is safe, secure, and in your control. Companies like Deliveroo, Trivago, TransferWise, and Yahoo, and many more rely on Looker for their business intelligent needs. Get more from your data with greater efficiency by using Looker. Head to looker.com slash minds today for an exclusive free trial. That's looker.com slash minds to get started today. Ben Goldfarb, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, when your book first came across uh, my desk, Eager, uh, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, I was really excited because I thought it was going to be all about Canada. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I looked at the map of places that you had gone and um, not one of the dots were actually in Canada. I know. My my Canadian friends are not happy about that. <laughs> How can you write a book about beavers and not have gone to Canada? Well, you know, I, f- I feel like I feel like there's so much Canadian beaver association that that part of the point of this book was to take back the beaver a little bit. You know, it's the beaver. Yes, it's this important Canadian icon that's really integral to their history. But, you know, beavers helped shape American landscapes and, uh, and American history as well. So we're we're going to reclaim the beaver a little bit. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll see about that. There were, there were certainly a lot of Canadians in the book, so I yes, was at least yeah. pleased to see that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, um, okay, so let's let's that that having been put aside, uh, <laughs> let's start with a kind of description of the beaver in terms of what we know about its current lifestyle. Um, from what I know, they're you know obviously eager, so they build and they're industrious. Definitely industrious. Uh, okay, and uh, you know they build dams and they're cute and they have flat tails and if you fry them with a bunch of sugar, they taste really good. <laughs> right. That's one beaver tail. Yeah. Okay. I, it sounds like, you know, you know, all there is to know about beavers. <laughs> no, so, um, so, okay. So tell me a little bit about um, what got you interested in beavers. Sure. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was, I was living in Seattle um, and I was working as a, as a, a 
freelance magazine journalist, uh, writing a lot for a magazine called High Country News, which sort of covers environmental issues throughout the American West. And uh, while I was out there, I, I met I met a, a beaver biologist, um, this guy named Kent Woodruff, um, and he was the director of this of this entity called the Metow Beaver Project in the Metow Valley in Central Washington. And, and basically, what that project does is they they live trap nuisance beavers, so beavers that are you know cutting down people's trees or flooding their backyards or what have you, uh, and they relocate those beavers alive to public land high in the headwaters where those beavers can can build their dams, as you said, create some ponds and store some water. When the, and the water then becomes available to farmers and ranchers and and uh, and to fish and wildlife downstream. And when I when I visited uh, Kent and, and the Metow Beaver Project uh, and you know, saw them relocating beavers. What was so stunning to me was was the fact that the places that they had put beavers just had these incredible, spectacular marshes and wetlands and ponds, and and that the streams had been totally transformed. And you know, I mean, I do a lot of fly fishing, and you know, the stream that I think of as like the perfect stream is sort of this clear, narrow, shallow uh, thing full of rocks that you could you know you could you could wade or jump right across. You know, and and the places that Kent had put beavers, you know, just looked nothing like that. They were these giant sprawling. Uh, wetland and pond complexes uh, filled with with dead and dying trees, uh, which was you know sort of not my traditional conception of like a healthy ecosystem. Um, but you know when you start to read about just how influential and pervasive beavers once were on this continent, you begin to realize that that sort of beaver influenced ecosystem is really what a lot of North America once looked like. Yeah, there's a really dramatic picture in your book showing how when you bring back beavers, it sort of res- you know restores this this kind of beautiful lush greenery. So you know at first the the, the top uh, panel you know is is a uh, is a place where there is a lot of cattle grazing and it just looks like barren and yeah. brown and dirty and there's like very little water. Yeah. And then the bottom picture is just this gorgeous like idyllic scene. Right. No, it's 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 really it's really stunning. You know, and a lot of a lot of what people don't realize about about beaver ponds, right, is that you know when a beaver creates a pond, there's all of the visible water, right, the surface water in the pond. But then the the weight of the pond is also pressing lots of water into into the ground, you know, recharging aquifers and raising the water table. So that kind of lush green that you're talking about, you know, that's really produced by this sub irrigation that's happening. Uh, you know, these these beaver ponds forcing water into the ground and creating these these broad lush wet meadows. I mean it's it is kind of amazing to think about that. I mean I really had no idea that they had such a profound influence on the actual sort of geography of the land. You know, when I was growing up, we went camping a lot and we, you know, go canoeing and stuff and we'd see beaver dams and they just looked like, you know, piles of sticks and it didn't it didn't look as if the beaver had created the, you know, the the lake that we were on, which I'm sure they hadn't because they were pretty large lakes. So what, you know, so I guess that's kind of where I'm where I'm kind of trying to understand how, where, what are the kinds of situations in which beavers can have such a great effect versus what I think a lot of us think about, which is just this one little, you know, pile of sticks in a lake. Right. So I, th- I think what's it's, what's important to remember is that really good beaver habitat is the same as really good human habitat, right? We love these these low gradient rivers, these these fertile river valleys. I mean, those were the kinds of places that beavers were once dominant, you know. And that's and those are the same places where we trapped out those beavers, filled in those wetlands. You know, we've we've lost more than half our our historic acreage of wetlands in this country, and built our farms and towns and put our power lines 
buildings and our, our highways and all of our infrastructure. We really, we really cleared out beavers from a lot of this country and reclaimed or, or claimed the, the areas that they had once occupied. So I think that, you know, I think that when you see that, that little beaver dam high in the mountains, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a very small vestige of what was once kind of a vast beaver empire, you know, and, and um, most of the places that they would have been most dominant um, and created the the most uh, impressive habitat are, are places that now we've completely filled in and and dried up. Hmm. I mean, you yeah. Some of the numbers that you quote in your book are pretty staggering. Like four hundred million beavers is what we started out with. Yeah, that's you know, I mean, nobody really knows, but that's that's sort of one one uh, early scientist's best estimate. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, that's kind of the the challenge, right? Is is that you know the 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 first white people to uh, invade this this continent were were largely beaver trappers. You know, they were here for the pelts, which were worth lots of money back in Europe, where where beavers had been trapped out for centuries. Um, so you know, what happened was the the trappers showed up, they eliminated all of these beavers, and by the time uh, farmers and um, you know naturalists and and scientists showed up, the beavers had been gone for decades. You know, so there there weren't really many people making observations about what this fully beavered landscape looked like and, and how it functioned. You know, we know a little bit from people like, you know, Meriwether Lewis and, and uh, you know, the Corps of Discovery, um, you know, and some some early trappers kept kept records. And we, you know, we, and we know more, too, from from Native American oral histories. But, you know, we, we really are just kind of guessing about how exactly beavers shaped our, our landforms. So now we're down to how many about how many beavers are in the U.S.? Yeah, another good question, and nobody nobody really knows. Um, I've I've seen an estimate of about 15 million for all of North America, um, which you know that sounds like a, a lot of beavers, right? They're not going to go extinct anytime soon. They're you know they're they're probably beavers in your own local stream. Um, but you know when you when you think about the fact that we were once at uh, up to 400 million, you know 15 million is is quite a, a small a small figure. So you know we've we've lost lots of beavers, but we've also regained lots of beavers, right? I mean at one point um, at the end of the fur trade, you know there were just a hundred thousand or so left. So from from one perspective, we've made lots of progress. Mm-hmm. This is not like the only way in which um, beavers are similar to humans in the sense that, you know, they're kind of industrious and that they shape the landscape. Um, in your book, you make the you make the kind of point that, in fact, there are a lot of similarities, one being tool use, for example. So let's talk a little bit about how beavers use tools. Yeah. So, well, obviously... Um Beavers are are amazing builders. That's that's kind of the fundamental beaver behavior. Beavers they, they cut down trees, right? They have they have these very uh, strong uh, sort of chisel like incisors, front teeth that they use to fell trees, and then they section those trees into into sort of more manageable pieces, uh, and then they then they use those pieces to create uh, lodges, which is sort of the beaver home, and dams, which are which are the you know the the woody walls that they use to impound water uh, and create these really remarkable ponds. So you know I'm, I, there there are probably I'm not it's a it's a great question about whether. You know, it's, I, th- I think it's all how you d- define tool use, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there are scientists who would, you know, who would say, well, you know, if beavers are, if if you if you consider that beaver tool use, then then a, a bird building a nest is is using tools in some respect. But there's there's a sort of there is sort of uh, an intentionality in the beaver manipulation of sticks that I think qualifies as tool use. You know, you hear about, for example, beavers filing down sticks 
to you know to chink a perfect hole in a in a in a dam you know um there's there's just the 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 ingenuity that they use with, with which they use these materials is really really remarkable yeah and so and, and to me you know before reading your book i didn't even realize there was a difference really between the beaver habitat home i should say and the dam that that those mm-hmm. are actually two separate structures yeah, yeah. So the so the lodges, um, so beavers sometimes they, they they'll live in in the river or stream bank or or lake bank uh, in sort of a burrow. But you know, oftentimes you'll see uh, a big sort of dome like construction in the middle of a pond, and that's that's the lodge, that's the home. Uh, there's there are tunnels that lead up into the lodge, um, and there's kind of a nice dry sort of nesting platform, uh, which they usually cover with wood chips, like you'd put at the bottom of your your gerbil cage or something. Uh, and you usually get, you know, you get sort of four to 10 beavers in there is kind of a typical colony size. So they're very family oriented. Uh, the the babies stick around for a couple of years before striking out on their own. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the beaver lodge. Yeah, it's a really cool uh, piece of uh, technology. Yeah. So I want to talk about the dams too, but now I'm curious about the sort of social lives of beavers. Mm, <laughs> so yeah. how do they make a colony? Are they, is it a mated pair that starts out? What is it? How does it work? Yeah. So it's a, it's a mated pair. Um, beavers are, you know, like humans sort of generally monogamous um, and, and fairly, fairly faithful. Uh, they, you know, they mate for life or until, until one of their, their until their, their partner dies. Um, and uh, yeah, and they, they have, they have kits every spring kits is that's the bit that's the baby beaver and in a lodge you usually usually have two or three generations of kits so you've got the 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 breeding pair the adults then you've got um the two-year-olds who have been you know who have been around for a couple of years and they sort of help to to train and and raise their offspring or their their siblings rather uh then you've got the one-year-olds and then you've got the newborns the the sort of the young of the year and then and when when the 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 newborns are, are born usually soon thereafter the uh the two-year-olds you know the oldest generation of kids uh heads off to find their own territory sort of like like teenagers being uh, shipped out to college or something yeah i can imagine a lot of two-year-olds who have uh siblings born also want to check out it's <laughs> probably a good time but, yeah uh, definitely right yeah once once they're no longer getting their parents attention yeah they're they're ready to split yeah okay so let's talk about the dam then that seems to me a, a really kind of great example of tool use because not only are they using you know sticks to create the dam but they are they're literally refashioning the water for their own purposes you could almost argue that the water itself becomes a kind of tool right exactly so beavers so on on land you know beavers are are very clumsy you know they're not they're they're sort of slow waddling smelly creatures that get totally devoured by wolves and coyotes and and cougars and black bears they're they're really uh, delectable prey for a lot of creatures but once they're in water, you know, they, they become this sort of, they're, I mean, they're amazingly agile. They're fantastic swimmers. They have these, these transparent eyelids that they can close um, to protect their eyes. They actually have a second set of, of fur-lined lips that they close behind their teeth so they can, they can drag and chew sticks while underwater without getting water down their throat. So they're, they're amazingly well-adapted to life underwater. Um, so if you're a beaver, of course, you want to expand the extent of that of that nice watery habitat that you love so much. Uh, so that's the point of the dam is to sort of broaden and deepen their ponds and to you know, create networks of ponds so you can travel throughout your entire habitat, you know, going from tree to tree without having to walk overland where you're going to get chow down on by a by a black bear so that's the point of the dam is to among other things is to is to create you know shelter 
Yeah. So do we know like how they know where to put the dam? I mean, you know, people have to get university degrees to figure out how to build a dam. (laughs) How do beavers make those decisions? Yeah. You know, they're they're, um, that's a great question. You know, there is so there are a few key things they're looking for. They're looking for for food resources, right? They eat they eat primarily deciduous trees. They love they love trees like aspen, cottonwood, uh, maple. So they're they're looking for good food resources, and they're looking for you know the right kind of stream. You know, if a stream is uh, if their stream is too powerful, you know that's just going to blow the dam out, right? There are beaver. I mean, there are beavers living in the Grand Canyon, but they're not going to you know dam the Colorado River anytime soon. So they're looking for a stream that's 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 sort of gentle enough in both slope and amount of flow that they can that they can build a dam that that lasts and and impound some water. So it's that really it's that combination of sort of the hydrology and the food resource availability. That's what they're looking for, the kind of the sweet spot there. And then they just take a bunch of, you know, sticks and just literally push them to the opening of of the stream? Or is there a little bit more engineering in in how they build the dams? Yeah, there's definitely some engineering. I mean, I think that I think that people what people don't realize until until they've actually seen a dam out of water is just how much rock and mud often goes into them. Uh, you know, you sort of see the the stick uh, crest above the water, but that the foundation uh, is is oftentimes a ridge of rocks. Uh, they they push tons of mud and and uh, and leaves and sort of dredged up muck from the bottom of the of the stream or pond in there. You know, they're pretty resourceful. I mean, I've seen I've seen pictures of the beaver loving friend of mine showed me this picture um, that he'd taken, which was a, a dam that had been built through the cab of an abandoned pickup truck. So they're actually using the this this pickup truck in the stream as part of the superstructure for their dam. You know, there's there's, there's a picture of a house that I, I came across uh, in the book that had been sort of flooded by beavers. And the beavers had actually built their dam up to the edge of the porch of the house and then continued the dam on the other side of the porch. They were incorporating the porch of the house into their dam. So they're pretty resourceful and they'll basically use the you know whatever topography or materials they have on hand. So how long do they live? I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, a, a long process to build a dam and a lodge and, you know, that must, you know, so so what what's the sort of average lifespan? Yeah, I think I think that, uh, you know, 12 to 15 would be it would be a pretty old beaver uh, in in the wild. Um, and oftentimes you'll you'll get, uh, you know, a beaver, a beaver pair remaining at a single uh, lodge and dam site, you know, for their for their lives. But, you know, they can also be pretty transient animals. Uh, you know, one of the things about beaver ponds is that is that they're they're they constantly fill in with sediment, right? There's, you know, as the as the water slows down when it hits the pond, the water drops its sediment load out of the water column onto the bottom of the pond. And and gradually over the course of years, you know, these ponds fill up with silt uh, and and become uh, become more meadow-like than than pond or wetland-like. Uh, and when that happens, you know, beavers 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 also often have to vacate uh, that habitat and move on to the the next site. So you know, there are places where the you know where the kind of the hydrology and the topography allows that that have had beaver dams in the same place for hundreds of years. And then there are other places where, you know, the dams are, are totally transient. They're there for the spring, they blow out um, or they fill up and, and uh, the beavers are on to the next site. So it all, you know, beaver behavior kind of depends uh, on, on the, the vagaries of, you know, wherever they're living. And that's also very human, you know, take the environment, use it for what you need, trash it and then leave. 
Yeah, <laughs> totally. Right. But the difference, yeah, that it's that's true. But the difference is that, you know, is that when we trash a habitat, I mean, we're, you know, we're basically screwing it up for, for uh, we're salting the fields, you know, for everything that follows. Whereas beavers are actually this, this kind of successional process that I'm describing creates amazing habitat. You know, for example, when beavers, when beavers create a pond, uh, they, they often kill lots of trees, right? I mean, of course, they're the trees they cut down, but then there are also the trees that get drowned, right? You so you so oftentimes when you go to a beaver pond, you'll see all of these standing dead trees um, in in the water, you know. And and to to us that looks kind of unsightly, um, but if you're a, a woodpecker or an owl or a porcupine uh, or some other kind of you know, dead tree or snag using animal, you know, there, there could be nothing better than the kinds of, of dead trees that beavers are creating. So I think that's a really important difference between us stupid, destructive humans and, uh, and beavers, you know, is, is that, is that we're, when we modify a habitat, you know, we usually do it in a way that, that reduces the amount of biodiversity that it can support. Whereas beavers are, are increasing the amount of biodiversity that habitat can support. Which, you know, someone might argue is really good for the robot revolution that's coming. Um, you know, they just, I, you know, just the machines are going to take over. I hadn't considered the the robot beaver connection, but now you're now you're making me think that there should be another chapter in this book. Um, but, you know, so so the other side of it, though, of course, is that, uh, you know, the be- the beaver, then you then talk about it as like a keystone species because of the way it can transform the environment and, and be really important. So yeah. what are some of the other species that have suffered as the beaver uh, population declined? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, here at, here on the West Coast where we're where we're talking, you know, I think salmon are, are a great example. Uh, you know, if, I mean, especially baby salmon, uh, especially baby coho, which is which in here in California is 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 uh, an endangered species. You know, if you're if you're a baby fish, what you're looking for is a nice slow pond with lots of side channels and backwaters, you know, places where you can rest and get out of the current and hide and be safe from predators and, you know, eat, catch some food, uh, you know, places where you can kind of chill out and, and hang out until you're ready to migrate out to the ocean. Uh, so when, when you know, beavers build that exact kind of habitat, uh, when beavers were wiped out, of course, you know, lots of that, lots of that great salmon habitat was destroyed. Uh, now in, in the Northwest, especially in Washington and Oregon, there are lots of scientists, uh, salmon scientists who are, who are treating beaver as kind of this critical partner in salmon restoration and, and are actually, you know, relocating beavers to create habitat. Uh, in some cases, they're building what's known as, as beaver dam analogs, which are basically human built beaver mimicry structures that the beavers can then kind of take over and maintain. So, you know, so I think, I think that salmon is, is a great example and there's, and there's so much money around salmon restoration, you know, salmon are such, are so important to economies and ecosystems and cultures. There's a ton of money in salmon right now. And a lot of that money is being diverted now to, to beavers, which is really exciting. Hmm. But the sort of relationship between beavers and money making humans is not not always quite so straightforward. In fact, you know, a lot of the stories in your book uh, are about humans who are trying to get rid of beavers because they're damaging they're, they're, they're changing the landscape, right? They're, they're building dams where we don't want them to be. Or, you know, we love, we love our wetlands and, and, you know, let's say we put uh, an, a really nice pathway through it and then all of a sudden the beaver comes along and sure. floods it. Yeah, totally. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a devout uh, beaver believer, as they say, but I, I am certainly not naive about 
what a huge pain in the ass they can be. Um, you know, there's no question. Of course, they 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 flood uh, roads and, and trails like you're talking about. You know, they they clog culverts. That's a that's a really big problem. Is a beaver will build uh, a dam in one of those pipes that goes under the road, and then the the water will rise and wash the road out, and and that's a really costly thing. Um, so yeah, there's the, you know there's certainly uh, lots of lots of beaver problems uh, or conflicts that that arise and uh you know there there are lots of you know i mean the in in uh 2015, you know, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture killed something like 22,000 beavers nationwide. Um, so there's certainly lots of, of nuisance beaver trapping that happens. And, you know, part of the point of the book is to say, hey, there are actually better ways of, of dealing with these problems. You know, we can we can solve the issues that beavers cause in a way that doesn't involve killing this animal that's actually providing us all of these great habitat creation and water storage benefits, you know, it's possible to coexist with these things. Yeah. So how, how hard is it to foil a beaver? You know, if, if, if like, let's say you have uh, a culvert that for the beaver seems like the perfect place to build a dam, are there, are there pretty easy solutions that can just protect that culvert and, or, or is this something that actually is a constant struggle? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's somewhere between the between the two. There are certainly so in in the book, and I talk a lot about um, this thing called a flow device. And a flow device is basically this pipe and fence combination that you know will pass water through the dam or through the culvert, you know, in a way that the beaver never quite figures out and and plugs up. That's the that's the idea. You know, in some in some cases, the beavers do figure it out, and then you have to modify the design. But basically, the idea is you you know you can say, okay, hey. I like having these beavers around. I appreciate everything they do for the environment, but you know I don't want them flooding my backyard. Uh, so you can put in one of these flow devices, and that basically regulates the the height of the pond so that the pond is remaining in place, but you know maybe it's not you know entering your basement. So that's the idea, and you know, and, and there's certainly the, there there definitely needs to be more more science around these flow devices. You know exactly. Uh, how they should be used and when they and when they work best and and so on and so forth. But you know the research that's been done is pretty conclusive uh, that these things are are effective uh, in most in most circumstances. And there's no question there are lots and lots of of beaver problems that we could be solving uh, using these kinds of like non-lethal mitigation devices rather than just reflexively turning to trapping. So one of the other things that struck me as I was reading your book is the is the kind of difference in the ecosystem that a beaver based habitat would create like as you as you say in this in this kind of pond and you know one problem that we have here in California and actually in lots of other places is you know especially uh, in the wake of climate change you know we have these like algae blooms you know algae blooms where you've you know ponds and stuff can cut and so like when you have too much standing water it kind of just kills off um, a lot of the other as you mentioned the beautiful stream that's flowing um, as we think of so is that is that also an issue in terms of how beavers are having an impact on the environment do we have to worry about as the climate changes the way that they build these ponds might actually cause more harm than good I bet you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that I think they cause more good than harm. <laughs> so, I mean, so that, so that, so, I mean, that algae bloom example, you know, I mean, that algae blooms are caused in large part by uh, excess agricultural nutrients, um, you know, or, or, I mean, or just, you know, nitrogen from other sources, um, like, you know, like, like uh, fertilizing your, your lawn or something, you know, it's, it's basically caused by, by excess nutrients, by pollution entering, entering water bodies and being swept out to the, to the lake or the, or the estuary or the ocean. That's sort of the, the watershed's endpoint. So, you know, you start to think, well, I mean, how do you get some of that, some of that, that nutrient runoff? out of the out of the system you know how do you prevent those algae blooms and those dead zones from forming 
Well, if you had a series of uh, little settling ponds that would that would sort of settle out those nutrients uh, to the bottom of the pond rather than letting them all aggregate together and run off to you know to whatever endpoint uh, that could be a pretty good solution um, and actually there's you know there's just there's some really great research in in Maryland which you know where where Chesapeake Bay uh, dead zones and algae blooms are a really big problem. Uh, you know, there's there's been research showing that beaver ponds can re- can remove as much as 20% of nitrogen and phosphorus from from a waterway. Um, you know, in in New England, uh, where I, I lived for a while, uh, you know, there's there's research in uh, Rhode Island basically showing that that beaver ponds are capable of mitigating up to 45% of this agricultural pollution. So it's it's really extraordinary the extent to which. Beavers are actually, you know, they're kind of these incredible water purification devices, as as well as as well as water storage devices. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say that beavers are gonna be good for the good for the algae bloom formation prevention rather than bad. And so there's another kind of way in which uh, parts of beavers have been used uh, to sort of, you know, for medicinal purposes uh, in humans, which I found really interesting. So, you know, we've kind of, you know, a lot of people think about, obviously, there is a term for female genitalia involving the beaver, right? I mean, um, uh, we have not been talking about that for this whole show in case anyone is really confused. Um, (laughs) uh, And this this actually, uh, this point that you were were talking about actually has, you know, in, in, in terms of male genitalia. So people used to think that beaver balls were, you know, really kind of medicinal. And it turns out yeah. that it's actually not testicles, but sacks of another kind. Totally. Filled <laughs> with. <laughs> okay, right. why don't you take I'll, over? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I'm just going <laughs> to. Jump clear, clear things up. Yeah. So, right. So, so beavers, uh, so the beaver, the strongest beaver sense is the sense of smell. They have really great senses of smell uh, and kind of poor vision by, by comparison. And the way they navigate the world and the way they, they communicate with each other uh, is by sort of leaving scent messages uh, around their territories. And they do that in part through the use of these, of these glands uh, called castor sacs, um, which contain a substance called castorium. And castorium is, that was, that was sort of thought to have medicinal properties for a very long time. Uh, and that was, and even before beavers were hunted for their pelts in, in Europe, they were hunted primarily for their, their castor sacs um, and for the supposed medicinal value of their castorium. What's crazy about that is that, I mean, so no question that a lot of the, the medicinal value idea was totally overblown. You know, they were thought to treat everything from like epilepsy to, to constipation. But, you know, it's, what's remarkable is that, is that castorium does contain salicylic acid which is the active ingredient in aspirin and which beavers derive from willow. Uh, so it's not, it's not totally far-fetched to believe that maybe there is some kind of medicinal value in, in castorium. Um, anyway, yeah, people for a long time, uh, beaver hunters were very confused. They, they thought that, that this castorium, this, this critical substance, was contained in the beaver's testicles, which doesn't make uh, any sense, really. Um, but but the the idea was the there is a kind of this persistent this persistent myth um, perpetu- perpetuated by by Aesop that a beaver that was being pursued by castorium hunters would actually gnaw off its own testicles and throw them back to the hunters, like spare my life and just take my balls, um, which have what you really want. Um, which again is like, you know, castorium's on the testicles. Um, beavers don't have external testicles to chew off. 
And also, what would the females do in that, in that sort of situation? Um, so the myth made no sense on a number of levels, but it, it did last for quite, quite a long time. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, you could, you could argue then if, if you did make some kind of, you know, pill out of the, you know, the, the, the contents of the sacs, and, and it could serve as a, as a, in a pain-killing function, as you mentioned, because of the salic cyclic acid. Yeah, I don't, I don't endorse that use of, of fevers. I think that they're probably uh, more useful as, as habitat creating engineers than as as aspirin yeah no i but, think I, uh, I agree with you i'm just yeah. i'm just saying maybe that's where some of the lore came from that's 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 that is perhaps where it came from yeah <laughs> and also just just to get other myths out of the way we talk about castor oil we're not talking about oil from these sacks yeah no that's from that's from that's from a plant that's from that's from like the castor bean um which which uh, and how how the castor bean came to share a name with castor canadensis the the north american beaver i have no idea you mean the Canadian beaver, canadensis? The, can- the Canadian beaver, yeah, 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 all right. <laughs> I'll give you that one. <laughs> well, I want to remind our listeners that Ben's book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, is available at booksellers everywhere. So as we wrap up this conversation, what's the one thing that you want people to take away from you know, your book and, and your research? Um, why, why is it that we sort of you know, have, have given e- beavers a kind of short shrift and, and why should we bring them back into you know, a prominent place uh, in, our, in our own kind of minds? Yeah, that's a you know that's a that's a great question. I think I think that part of the reason they've gotten short shrift is that is that we humans tend to hate animals that resemble us too much. If that makes sense, I think that you know, like when you look at the way that we treat coyotes or ravens, you know, here are really smart, adaptable animals that thrive in in suburban and urban settings, and and uh, inevitably that leads them into conflict with people, and and we sort of can't tolerate these animals that are able to to persist in the habitats that we've engineered. Um, and I think that there's part of that with beavers. You know, as I said before, beavers and humans kind of, we we modify the environment, you know, not always in similar ways, but, but uh, you know, to to maximize our, our food and shelter. It's a, a very both human and beaver behavior. Um, you know, we both love these fertile river valleys and floodplains. Um, you know, we love low gradient rivers. We, we use tools. And I think that in, in some ways, you know, we have a hard time coexisting with, with this animal uh, that, that resembles us in a, in a certain way, um, you know, when its, when its vision for its environment clashes with ours. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think that the way to bring them back is to just accept a little bit more complexity and dynamism and diversity in our, in our lives. You know, we, we, when we look at a, a beaver created ecosystem, uh, you know, with its, its pond and its marsh and its, its, uh, water everywhere and, and side channels branching off the stream and, you know, and running willy nilly across the floodplain and dead, dead and dying trees all over the place. You know, we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's kind of ugly, but I think instead of ugliness, we should, we should look at that and, and see complexity, you know, a, a kind of an amazing diversity of niches that support, support life in all of its various forms. So I think that's, you know, that's sort of the, the philosophical way to restore beavers is to, is to think about them as creators, not of, of messiness, but of, of complexity and diversity. 
I hope people think about Canadians that way too. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who is currently struggling uh, with a pigeon pair uh, that has mm, yeah. decided to nest in our garage, I think you might be onto something. I, I can't help you with that one, but uh, but I encourage you to 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 embrace the the pigeon crap and the and the feathers and the sticks all over the place. That's, that sounds like fun to me. <laughs> ben Goldfarb, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot. That was really fun. I want to revisit all of the conversation about dams because I had no idea that beavers were doing that much alteration to the environment in a way that has actually damaged things. I, I guess in a way, weird way, I actually feel a little better about humanity that we're not the only ones messing things up. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, as well, I think there are lessons there for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you see damage, the beaver sees change. <laughs> the beaver sees improvement, you know, just the way that we do with, you know, a lot of the things that we do the, to the environment. Um, you know, I think I think that that is the, the interesting lesson here is that um, in some ways that, you know, this this small animal has a lot of potential to, you know, kind of really recreate wetlands, create wetlands where there weren't any. And, and that we can learn a lot about if you have a problem where there's drought, there are these dramatic pictures in the book where, you know, it just shows like after, you know, cattle grazing and farming, you know, the land is just completely barren. And then you throw a bunch of beavers in there and all of a sudden, over the course of a number of years, it begins to look like a wetland. Uh, so how they do that, how they do that in a way that is, you know, seems to sort of be a way to, to harness water and not just have complete runoff and and, and really kind of grow slowly, uh, regain the environment, I think is, is a really good lesson for people who want to reclaim a lot of these barren lands. And you brought up the idea of, of keystone species in the conversation. Uh, and it just makes me wonder, is this really a viable thing? Like that practically we're going to see people do this on a scale basis that beavers are going to be reintroduced are going to be introduced into areas to restore wetland without disrupting that the keystone impact in that area so they are vegetarians which means they're not going to eat other species um but you know they they will damage the environment in those which those species are living but you but i think that's why the argument for bringing them into places where we have devastated the environment and gotten rid of a lot of the native species uh is a good argument it's not like we want to bring in beavers in places where you know in the deserts of arizona where first of all they won't find any water and won't be able to do their thing but also where, you know, the native species would be, you know, very threatened. I think it's about bringing beavers back to places where they used to be in order to restore those areas after we humans have damaged them. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this episode. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your best picture. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring. <laughs> oh, to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian G. 
And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.